Welcome back again, guys. This is the 21st episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. Joining me today to talk about deep listening and the physicality of sound is Scottish percussionist Dame Evelyn Glennie. After suffering the loss of her hearing at age 12, Evelyn learned to listen through vibration. A trained musician and multi-instrumentalist, she has gone on to become one of the foremost solar percussionists today. Immersed in her world of sound for this conversation that took place in Huntingdon, England, we discuss feeling music, the act of true listening, and the physicality of performance. joining me and for having me here in Huntingdon. You're very welcome. So I'd like to start with something that's a bit maybe abstract. I know that your method of listening to and playing music involves a combination of feeling, seeing and hearing vibrations. Um, So I'd like to know what does music feel like to you? Uh, Obviously it must feel different than sound or than speech for example, but how is it for you to kind of differentiate between sound and music? Oh, um, it's a big question and I don't think I can answer it just, you know, succinctly or simply um, because at the at the end of the day, sound is vibration. So, and that's what music is. Um, I'm really interested in sound um, and that's how I play music is that the sound has to interest me first of all and I need to understand what that sound is. And that's a sound that you pay attention to through your body. Um, And so a piece of music is built on sound. Um, And that's what I like to explore, you know, in the privacy of my own four walls. You know, if I'm practicing, it's sort of discovering more sound to a particular musical phrase or something. And uh, so, you know, and, and what's inclined to happen is that you don't hold on to what you're feeling. So you can play a phrase or a piece of music or whatever, um, and, and that's that. The, the feeling then is gone. And then when you repeat that phrase, you're not expecting to feel it in the same way. I mean, physically feel it. And um, so it's almost as though you're painting something on glass and then you wipe it off and then you paint it again. And it's going to be a little bit different. Mm. And then you wipe it off and then you paint it again and so on. So that's what I really enjoy about, you know, discovering sound and and music. Um, But when you're uh, digesting speech, that for me is a completely different thing because that's very much based on looking at a particular person, Mm -hmm. you know. So speech means absolutely nothing to me if I'm not looking at that person. So lyrics of a song or something has very little interest unless I'm reading it, you know, on the page. Um, But if I'm watching someone sing a song, I'm not actually, funnily enough, getting the lyrics because to lip read hmm. lyrics is really difficult, you know. <laughs> so it's it's always a sound element that I'm interested in. You often talk about the fact that music is language, but with a lot of dialects. So what makes your musical dialect unique to you? Uh, for example, if we were to listen to your music, how could we tell that it's you without knowing? Mm. Well, it's an interesting question. It's it's probably through sound. And it's funny because if um, if a recording is played, I 
instantly know if it's me, mm. you know, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, but And I know that through the sound. And um, it's funny because, you know, not that long ago, about a year, year and a half ago or so, um, I was watching something on YouTube. It was a person uh, playing the marimba and playing a piece that I, I play or used to play very, very often. And so I know the piece backwards. And um, and it's it's although it's a written piece of music, there's a lot of kind of freedom in it. And and as I was watching this, the sound didn't match what was actually going on. And I felt, my God, that just sounds like me. Mm. You know, it it I could I could say this is me. You know, I really felt absolutely sure. And because there there are things that I I did in that piece that. It's not in the music. It's not. It, it has to just come from you, kind of thing, you know. And uh, and I was absolutely sure that someone had taken the sound, at, but then tried to match their playing to the sound. Right, right. But it didn't match. You know, it, it was like sinking or something. And uh, but and I think that's that's what happens. So it's not so much the style or or um, the style of music that you're playing. It it is more the sound and and what you do with the interpretation. Um, and I think in my case, you know, I'm sort of pretty certainly in the percussion world known to to take something and then completely break the rules with it. So. Um, which is a problem if you're playing in Japan because they, they love to look at the music and see exactly that if there's a crescendo <laughs> marked, there's going to be a crescendo that's right. going to happen at that time. And that absolutely doesn't work with me at all. So I think that um, it's it's the freedom that people would probably recognise. And so when you say that you can recognise your sound, can you also recognise the sound of another artist that you love uh, in the same way if you were watching a YouTube video, for example? Yeah, possibly, possibly. Not not every every artist because my listening repertoire is so small mm. um, and I've never been a big listener of external things. I'm a big listener internally, but not externally. And that's really because I need to see things going on, you know. Yeah, certain, certain you know, people, I, I think, aha, I think that could be so-and-so, you know. Um, but yes, that's the way it is. I interviewed the pianist Niels Fram. I don't know if you know him, uh, recently, and he was saying that the thing he loves most is when people say that they can tell that a song is his even if they have their eyes closed or if they can't see mm. who's playing it. I guess that that's something that resonates with you. Like, do you like to have this specific sound? Yes, yes, absolutely, yeah. And I think that's, that's definitely something that you really want to encourage with young players, you know, because there's always that um, uh, tendency and, and natural tendency to want to copy someone else mm. or emulate someone else, and whether it's through the physical style of playing or, or through the sound. Um, and But it's really great when, when you can encourage young people to improvise, and I think through improvisation, people then discover things about their sound. Mm -hmm. um, how willing are they to go in certain aspects? How willing are they to explore their instruments, to explore the space that they're in and so on, to explore an, an element, an ingredient of music, you know, just one note and, and see where that would take them. And I think improvisation is such a key thing to to develop and to nurture, you know, no matter what kind of thing you're playing, what sort of music, what what, what sort of instrument, um, that's a discovery of yourself more mm. than anything. I think it's interesting that with 
electronic music, for example, there's not there's not like notes to follow. Like when you're learning the drums or when you're learning uh, violin or piano, for example, you know, you have sheet music and it tells you what to play. So I think it's maybe more um, more often that young players kind of get into this mindset of following the notes on the page. Yes, yes, no, possibly so. And, and I mean, it is interesting with electronic music because it's in a way a different kind of listening as well, you know, because you know that something has been manipulated and uh, and which which is really fascinating and and it, it it's not something that's always visual um, it is and I think also electronic music needs patience to mm. listen to mm. you've you've got to actively decide that I am going to listen to this now you know and mm. not also do the washing up and and your emails and and uh, and I think that's really interesting um, because we are slightly struggling with kind of our, our sort of ability to, you know, kind of sustain our interest, you know, through listening um, because we live in a very, um, you know, fragmented world, really. It's just full of bits. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's quite interesting that. I found that when I work with electronics, normally it's with percussion and electronics. And, uh, and the only thing I would say is that I suppose the slight frustration I have is that you can't deviate from from the audio track that has been made. Um, however, I love the fact that, you know, if I'm working with an electronic artist and they're working in a live situation and manipulating what you do in mm. a live situation, that I find absolutely fascinating. Mm. And have you, have you done that many times? Not many times, <laughs> no, but I'm about to work with um, Roley Porter and uh, he's a, a, a wonderful musician. And we, we did a, what we called the, the um, One Day Band project um, through Trestle Records. And it's basically Trestle Records decided to have a project whereby they would um, get, you know, two people or two bands or, you know, two unlikely sources to come together for mm. one day in a studio and basically see what happens. And uh, and it was really interesting, really amazing. And, and Roly and myself had not met before. So it was like, oh, well, hello, you know, <laughs> nice to meet you. And right, we've got a day together in the studio. And so uh, that was very interesting. And then uh, Trestle Records have said, well, look, would you be interested in doing a live performance? And so again, this is completely outside of our comfort zone, you know, mm. working together in, in a live situation. So we both said, yeah, let, let's give this a go, you know, and see see what happens. Um, and again, that's the beauty of, of music, you know, and people who are interested in sound. So you're not thinking that, oh, that's that kind of musician or that kind of musician. It's just simply people who are interested in, in being curious and experimenting and okay if it doesn't work it doesn't work but you've actually lost nothing you know it's it's a it's a win-win situation earlier you said uh we were talking about young musicians kind of getting stuck into copying someone or emulating someone and you said physical style as as an example can you explain what what you mean by that like emulating someone's physical style is that just literally playing in the same sort of look yes yeah. absolutely yes it's funny because i remember a few years ago or many years ago there happened to be a wonderful marimba player who uh was from the states and he's he uh, lived and started teaching in holland 
Holland and uh, and in various places throughout Europe. And he, he had a, a wonderful style when he played, you know, physical style. And one of the things that he used to do was he had this tendency to lift up one of his legs when he played, you know, and but backwards. And uh, it was just a thing that he did. It was just a little idiosyncrasy, I suppose. And and uh, and you would instantly know his his students because they all did that, and which was kind of funny, really. Um, there's no real reason for it to happen. It just simply happened with this particular teacher. But then how that you, you know uh, came about through uh, the the following generation was quite interesting. And and so you sometimes see this kind of thing. I'm not just saying that only, but um, so there's there's definitely. Um, you know, if percussion players uh, are in the limelight a lot and they're playing in a particular style, whether sticks are high or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, flamboyant, or um, then you, you will often find a wave of students who play like that until another one comes through and then it kind of settles down a bit. And and uh, so that that is interesting because, you know, I find that there has to be a kind of thought process going through their minds as to what is more important. Is it the visual aspect or is it the, the quality of the sound? That's really interesting because that doesn't really exist within electronic music, I no, don't think. No, so. exactly, exactly. So <laughs> that's good. We talked about this a bit briefly, but in your TED talk, you spoke about how your job as a musician is not to simply translate the notes that you see on the page, but to interpret them. Um, can you talk about interpretation, I guess, or improvisation maybe is a better word for it, I'm not sure. Well, in, it, it is in this context interpretation um, because basically, I mean, if, if you read a book or something, you, you read the words, but internally you're kind of telling the story, you know. Um, or, you know, if I said to you right now, how are you today? You know, and that was that. How are you today? I mean, you think, oh. <laughs> but if it's like, oh, how are you today? You yeah. know, or I could say, how are you today? Or how are you today? You know, all of those have different meanings, and 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 that's really, you know, just taking all of the same words but emphasising different things, and and that's what music is about. That's what interpretation is about. So it's taking what you see on the page, so translating that, but the story and the feeling and the experience is is when the interpretation comes into play, and all of that involves things that you don't see on the written page. So that's why improvisation is so interesting because you're basically experimenting. You know, you experimenting um, you know getting away from the the metronome mark or getting away from the dynamic I mean what is MP what is MF you know what is F well in what context you know are we talking about MP can be extremely loud if you're in a library mm. but absolutely hopelessly soft if, if you're in a football stadium or something so you know it's all of those sort of decisions that you have to experiment and with and think about and um, and and just execute. And so, was it a learning process for you to start interpreting or Im improvising when you first started out or when you were younger? Well, strangely, no. And and the the reason I say that is because you know we had a, a an upright piano 
um, in the farmhouse when I was growing up. And as a youngster, I just sort of like any infant mood, you know, you bang, 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 bang on the piano. But, you know, that was exploration, I suppose, you know, um, to then, you know, gradually beginning to pick out tunes that I might have picked up from the television, you know, advert tunes and things, even if it was just with two fingers. But, you know, that's listening, listening skills, and then feeding it through, you know, the keyboard. And, and uh, to then, you know, my parents suggesting, well, perhaps we, we should see if we can get a teacher so that she can learn to read music. But I was always interested in improvising and playing by ear. And that's how a lot of Scottish music is, traditional music is, mm. is dealt with. So that's always been part of my journey. And of course, as a percussion player, you have a tendency to improvise anyway, you know, or even if you're working with a composer, they're, you know, they're, they're far more likely to ask a percussion player to experiment in so many different ways than perhaps they are if they were working with a violinist, mm. you know, or a clarinetist or something. So, you know, oh, what would happen if we put this bunch of keys on top of a, a conga or something? And, well, you wouldn't say that to a cellist, you know. <laughs> um, so, and I think that's really interesting. Um, so there's almost like a childlike curiosity that goes on with percussion playing than, than anything. But that's a form of improvisation. And so if you're playing with an orchestra, for example, does that limit the amount of improvisation that you can do? Um, if it's a concerto with an orchestra, because I don't play in a percussion section in an orchestra, but um, if it's a concerto, then to an extent, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, you're playing a structured piece of music. Um, there may be moments where you are allowed to improvise, such as the cadenzas and so on. Um, and it's not that often that a composer will actually write out a cadenza, as they would with other instruments. So normally it's just like a, a blank bar, you know, a cadenza. <laughs> <laughs> so, and off you go, you know, which is, is kind of fun. I quite like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you've got 80, 100 musicians or so um, that need to be considered and are all playing part, you know, of that overall end result. Right. So I guess you have to be, like you said, considerate of what other people are yes, doing. Yes, yes. In your TED Talk, you also spoke about how music sounds different to someone in the audience than it does to the performer because of where and in what ways the sound reaches the audience member versus the performer, mm -hmm. um, that the performer is actually experiencing a very raw sound because of their position above the instrument, mm -hmm. and that there's also a pureness in the moments between the notes, kind of a whole journey of sound, as mm -hmm. you called it. Does that mean that the audience hears a sort of less good version of the music, would you say? Uh, no, not at all. I, I would say that, you know, the performer gets warts and all, mm. um, quite literally. So we don't get that um, sort of blooming flower that spreads once it gets out into the auditorium. So when you play a closed roll on a snare drum, it will always sound a tad lumpy when you're right there doing it, you know, but if you stand five, ten feet away, it will be like a bit of velvet, you know, because the acoustics have kind of eased out the lumps and bumps. So, um, so in actual fact, the audience get a, a very different dimension and um, because there's, there's time to digest all of the, the sound there, obviously it depends where you're sitting, but um, so 
yeah, it's, it's not better or worse, really. It's just a completely different perspective. <clears throat> so I guess uh, acoustics play a really big role in kind of how a piece of music will sound. Like, have, have you had bad experiences in that? Oh, respect? definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's impossible to uh, really control the acoustics. I mean, it's that's that's life that's that's the way it is and and you know for example if you play in somewhere like the royal festival the the royal albert hall which is a spectacular hall to be in you know it's it's it just looks so amazing but to play in it it's it's quite hard mm. actually and and you've really got to think you know when that hall is full it becomes a different specimen again and um so you know with places such as um you know like a cathedral where the the, the acoustics are really wet you know you you can you know that they're going to be wet, so for drums and things, it's going to be a real muddy affair. Um, for marimba, it can be wonderful. Um, so I think for many different instruments, halls can speak quite differently. Um, I don't think that you can control a hall entirely. Um, but ultimately, once you're on stage, you play how you play anyway. That that moment, you just let it all happen, and and that's the way it is. And that's the beauty about live performances, really, is that you you take everything as it as it really is, and just kind of enjoy the experience. There's a nice quote from you uh, in which you talked about wanting to learn the cello in another life because you loved the position of the cellist, kind of with their whole body wrapped around the yeah. instrument. Um, can you talk a bit about how the different body positions or sort of physical stance that a performer takes can influence the sound that they hear, the sound that they make. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think with percussion, we're often detached. You know, the stick detaches our limbs from the, the direct contact often, not with all percussion instruments. I mean, if you're playing congas or bongos, you know, often it's skin on skin. But basically, the physical aspect is important because, you know, I, I find that when I'm setting my instruments up, I set them in such a way that um, I, I musically think about the setup, you know, where I want the lower frequencies to be and the higher ones and so on. Um, and I often treat a, a multi-drum setup almost like a keyboard, so the low on the left, high on the right. Um, a lot of people will will play a bass drum with the right foot and still play it with the right foot regardless, you know, but I often play it with the left foot, not because I'm left-handed or anything, but because I want that sound to, to be coming from the left. But there are times whereby I really wished I'd longer arms, for example, <laughs> um, or be taller um, in order to musically space things out. I mean, physically, mm -hmm. but for, for, for it then to have a, a different visual feel as well. Um, but ultimately, you have to be in a position to control the sound. So a setup is very particular to the actual person. Um, and then how you execute your sound. I mean, I'm inclined to basically play with my big toe and, and just let the whole weight of the body come down rather than the, 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 just the, the wrist and hand mm. section. Um, so there's an awful lot of kind of literally just just plopping the whole body weight, you know, th through through the surface that you're you're striking. Um, but other people have have very different ways that that are really interesting too. And and I think that that isn't something that you're you're really taught. That that's that has to be about listening to yourself, you know. 
um, and the decisions that you make and, and also knowing that the body will change over time mm. and, and certain pieces of music, you know, I find that I'm shelving certain pieces of music um, because they're just not feeling the same way as I perhaps used to feel them um, or some pieces where I used to perhaps try to play early on and they just didn't seem to sit well at all. Now we're actually making a bit more sense, you know, but that's just all about accepting that things will slot into place in their own time. Mm. So to force something isn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. It's just having the patience to just let things develop in, in their way. When you said that you feel like your physical style is maybe changing as you are getting older in a, in a good way? Yes, I would say simply because, um, I mean, it's so interesting now when I can look back on on uh, what has happened up to up to now. I mean, when I was when I started percussion, I wanted to be as good a percussion player as I could, and then I realised, well, that's that's never going to happen because you know I've only got one lifetime, you know, <laughs> and there's no way that I'm going to get through all of the percussion instruments and be good at them all. Um, so it was an impossible thing, but whatever is in front of me, I want to, to do the best I can. And then I decided that, well, I want to be as good a musician as I could be. But then again, that's a never ending, you know, journey. So you do the best you can. And then I thought, well, wh what is it that really interests me? And it's a sound. Mm. And so with that, it means that Truly, whatever is in front of you, whether it's a, a, a mug of coffee or a tabletop or the most expensive marimba, you know, it's all of these things are going to be treated with the same respect. And that means that your focus then is going to be on that particular object. And if your focus is on that object, so will the body, the physical body. And, um, and I think that then can influence your sound. So, you know, when I was young, I used to want to have the stage full of instruments and the kitchen sink, you know, just absolutely everything on there. I wanted big setups, composers to write for lots of instruments and so on. And, you know, you had the, the energy to deal with all of that and, and the, the, you know, logistically, that was great, filling the van up and all of this sort of thing. And then, of course, as the years go by, you think, oh, hold on a second, I just don't want to be filling the van up and having spending hours setting all of this and then hours taking it down and so on. So, and I discovered that, well, hold on a second, you know, a snare drum really interests me. You know, so what is it, I you know, about that that interests me or a maraca or a cowbell or something and I discovered that actually less is more but that's an age thing um, in the same way that I could really have a much greater appreciation towards slow tempos or feeling that you know if there was a great big gap in the music I didn't have to fill it up you know I could just quite be quite happy just standing there or sitting there and letting the sound be, you know, just letting it be, almost like a duo in a way. And I suppose it's a difference between walking into a restaurant and asking for a table for one as opposed to a table for two or three or four mm. or whatever and feeling absolutely mm. comfortable that you're sitting there having your food by yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're not trying to sort of, well, just also read a book yeah. and, you know, well, well, pretend I'm writing in my notebook or something, <laughs> you know, um, but you feel absolutely comfortable sitting there and just looking out into the restaurant, eating your food and whatever. And that's how things are feeling musically. Um, 
so so I find that really interesting and I can't explain you know why it should be or anything I can only say it's it's probably an age thing but so who knows in 20 years time I might be back to the kitchen sink again who knows <laughs> um so I would like to know also how how different does your music feel or sound when you're listening back to a recording of yourself versus when you're playing it in a performance or when you're recording in the studio uh does that does that feel like is it less for example um if uh, me as a listener if i'm talking about you know listening to something on my laptop versus listening to something at a concert that's less immersive for me so is immersive a word that you oh yeah it's two completely different things Mm. and and i i very rarely listen to music as such and even much more rare listen to myself that once the recording is done it is done Mm. it's like a frozen moment in time literally And uh, because the thing with recording for me, and I really enjoy recording, but, you know, there are so many um, thoughts that go through your mind where you you can't decide which interpretation that you you want to to commit to, you know, Mm. because there are so many ways of doing something and you just say, oh, crumbs, you know, oh, well, okay, let's just go go with it how it is right now you know and uh but you know as soon as you've done it you think oh crumbs but i could have maybe done this as well or mm-hmm. that or and that's the way it is and and i think really the tendency you know with recorded music is that when people do listen to it especially with a lot of the percussion repertoire um it's different now with youtube and where you can see so many people playing the same pieces of music but in the early days people would buy recordings and think ah that's how evelyn plays it Mm. or that's how danny plays it or joe plays it or whoever but and well that's one of the ways that we play it and and so people would be basing their interpretations on that thinking it that might be the definitive interpretation well there is no definitive you know and uh, and and that kind of I, I didn't sit well with me at all and so I really just have never listened to myself I don't use them as reference points if conductors say well I listen to your recording of such and such and I see that you know you're doing this or you're doing that and I say that's 20 odd years ago I've mm. got absolutely no idea what I might feel you know right now so um so yeah it's it's interesting recording actually but you're almost sort of massaging the microphone you know trying to have a conversation with the microphone to you know create that feeling of a live performance is that a lot of trust to have in yourself in that you kind of don't really know if you're doing something right or not if you're not listening to it back do you know what i mean yeah it it's it's, I don't know if it's trust or if it's just, confidence, maybe. Yeah, I I don't know what it is really. It's just one of those things that has always been the case and with with me. Um, you know, I remember when I first started recording for BMG, and I I had. Um, I had several years with them and of course I was recording a lot of the solo percussion repertoire and I worked with a wonderful producer but this was all new repertoire for him. He had never recorded a a solo percussionist before and he, um, a lot of producers didn't want the 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 musicians to then sit into any of the editing or mixing or whatever they didn't like that process because they often the producers often find them interfering and and you know more of a hindrance than mm-hmm. a help 
And uh, but I said, look, I really would like to to sit in on these things. You know, I'm a pretty civil person, so I won't kind of interfere or anything. But he was so glad of that simply because he said, look, you know the music. You know, he said I can sort out the the sound or the whatever they need to do. You know, from a technical point of view. But he said I need you in um, in case you spot you know a wrong note or a or a something that shouldn't be there or if he's made an edit that actually isn't quite quite right or something because he doesn't know the repertoire inside right. out and uh, and so he was very grateful for that and the fact that we got on really well so the chemistry was good and we were after the same goal mm. at the end of the day mm -hmm. and I think that that really hammered home very early on with our recording process that it's so much to do with teamwork mm -hmm. it really is I mean the engineer the producer the the musicians um, you know the people who make the tea or the coffee or whatever it is they're all part of that end product really um, so I can't underestimate you know the importance of a really good feel in a studio do you think that live is still the best way to experience music I know that these days there are some kind of technologies and things like that that are bringing us closer to having a live experience at home. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard of the sub pack. It's mm -hmm. uh, like a, yep, like a uh -huh. back cushion that transmits low end frequencies. Mm -hmm. But is there something about the kind of physicality of performance that can't be captured at home or on your laptop speakers? Yes, absolutely, definitely, without a doubt. And I think you've only got to go to a live performance, you know, whether it's a performance in a pub, in a concert hall, in a theatre, in an outdoor venue, you know, in a marquee, whatever it is, there's something about seeing a performer or a group of people playing music, you can see the expressions of their faces, you can see, you know, where their eyes are going, you can see the physicality of playing, you can, you know, get get their personalities more, the the character of the music, the, the ups and downs of all of that, the, um, you know, it, it's it's just a completely different feel and it's a different feel for them too. Um, and, the, you know, an audience is so much part of a performance, you know, they really are and things happen to performers when there's an audience there. Sometimes it's like walking on a tightrope, you know, um, it can be nerve wracking, it, it can be exhilarating, um, but you feed off an audience without a doubt. And so it's such a different feel. And, and I think the world would be a very dark place if, if live performances didn't exist. Do you think that physicality comes into play for audience members, maybe in ways that we don't think about? Like, obviously, there's, you know, bass and, and low end that we feel, but uh, in your opinion, is there other ways that we might feel music that we don't even realize? Yes, I do. Um, I do. And I, I, I'm not sure how to explain the answer to that, because I think that everybody comes into a venue with different emotional baggage, you know, um, and that's something that a, a, a musician can't control. And it's not their job to control that. Their job is to give an experience. Um, it's not to say, I am going to make you feel X, Y, or Z. It's simply, well, this is the feel of the music, but then how you respond to that is entirely up to you. And, and, and that's fine. And I think, you know, that is then what gives people, each and every person, a different experience, you know. Um, and it's... 
it's that's what you perhaps don't get when you're listening to a recording that communal feel you know that shared feel um so so yeah i think it's it's more than just the, the physical feeling it's the emotional one as well um that i suppose builds a person's story you know so a piece of music might mean something to them at that particular time but maybe to their next door neighbor sitting next to them <laughs> it, it may have oh well actually no i didn't really feel it like that mm. however you know i really enjoyed it or whatever it may be or oh i, I see that as, as i i feel that quite differently and mm -hmm. that's absolutely fine mm -hmm. um and and likewise the performer is feeling it how they feel it you know so um everybody has permission to to really take that product and and allow it to to digest in their systems. When was the last time that that happened for you that you really felt a performance on a on a bigger level? I think really a powerful time was um, when I performed at the London 2012 opening ceremony for mm. the Olympics. And I think strangely, it was one of the few times whereby you felt such tremendous teamwork and and um, this kind of shared experience that it really brought down borders and walls and all sorts of things where everybody was after the same thing. It didn't matter whether someone was picking up a pair of sticks for the very first time or had been picking sticks up for 30 years. We were all after the same thing and all committed to the same thing. And that power really was incredible. And I think that that event changed an awful lot of people's lives in, in many different ways, you know. So I think the medicine of that type of event and when you can get a pool of people all coming together and sharing that same experience without any kind of class barriers or, um, ooh, you know, that person's a professional and I'm not or ooh. whatever, whatever. It was a, That was totally irrelevant. And just seeing also and respecting the people who worked so hard behind the scenes, all of the technical people. Because you had a thousand drummers playing with you and then you also had like this whole massive team that was putting together the whole opening ceremony. So that's kind of like teamwork on a oh, massive huge, scale. Huge scale, huge scale, absolutely enormous scale. That's possible to do when, when you have the right kind of spirit and forces and will and and everything like that it, it's really possible to do and the right kind of leadership as well i think that really was a very special special moment the other time i remember was when i gave the first ever percussion concerto in the history of the proms in london and that was in 1992 and we played a piece called veni veni emmanuel come come emmanuel by james mcmillan a fellow scot and uh and it was with the scottish chamber orchestra and but because the proms had never had a percussion concerto before, it was like, well, right, okay, you know, the organisers, well, let's hope, kind of thing, you know. And But it was a great piece of music and it's, it has stood the test of time and a really great piece of music. And, the, and it's very hard for the orchestra it, and it still is hard for orchestras. And so the chamber orchestra was absolutely on the edge of their seats and so determined. And I was, you know, I was pretty young and, and I was sort of really eager to, to not only promote percussion, but obviously this piece of music. So a lot was hanging, you know, on this. 
and the conductor was brought in at the very last moment because he was replacing um, the conductor who should have been conducting it because uh, he was ill. So he was, you know, <laughs> sort of on tenterhooks too and really on fire. And the whole thing just went remarkably well. You know, it's one of those where you, you actually gave yourself a little pat on the head because it went, everything, everything just slotted into place. Great piece, fantastic response. The response was unbelievable. And, it, it, you know, when all of those things line up, it's an amazing feeling. Um, but that doesn't happen that often. You can get many really good performances, but performances where you just think, whew, you know, that, that really was good. Um, you know, because normally you're, you're always so hypercritical of everything that mm. you do, but because all of the elements fell into place. So even if you play well, but maybe the orchestra doesn't play well, or the orchestra play well, but you haven't played well, then there's always something, you know. Um, but in this case, everything just seemed to slot into place, and and it it is an amazing feeling. You said in an interview around 2003 that I read um, that sometimes you have to remind yourself to breathe when you're playing because otherwise you get sort of a bit mm. mechanical in your movements. Uh, can you talk about that and maybe just about sort of your physicality or your movement when you're when you're playing? I mean, it's funny with with breathing because yes, there is a tendency to just kind of forget that. Oh, I'm breathe, taking a breath for a little while, you know, and uh, and you then discover that, well, that's the reason why you're, you might be hunched up or, or a bit wooden or whatever. So I think that um, uh, really remembering to breathe and just breathe well, you know, as you're performing mm -hmm. is, is really, really important. Um, I'm not, uh, I've never been the kind of person to do, whether it's yoga or tai chi or whatever it may be, um, before concerts and things. Um, however, for people who do, that's that's fantastic, I'm sure. Um, but I do need to have peace and quiet. I need to just not have commotion, um, not have the senses overloaded in any kind of way before, before performances. Um, but I think that really for musicians, they're a bit like dancers, they need to be fluid and supple. Simple as that, mm. you know, the fluidity and the suppleness of what you do, um, which really comes from the feet, um, is, is pretty crucial. And with percussion, you know, the body normally is in a fairly natural state, you know, you're using all of your limbs, um, you, you can curve your body in natural ways, more or less, you know. Um, I mean, if you imagine the violin and taking the violin away, but just leave the posture of playing, that's pretty unnatural. Mm -hmm. Or a flute, you know, the, the arms up in the air like that, and take the instrument away. Well, you know, we're rarely doing anything else whereby we're in this sort of position, really. Um, but with percussion, you know, we could be putting cutlery down on the table, <laughs> you know, we could be laying a brick down, we could be hammering, you know, a brick or something. Right. It's, a, it's all natural sort of movements mm -hmm. for, for percussion players. So, um, and, and it's really listening to that machine that we've got. I think it's interesting because with electronic music, even beyond DJing, like with uh, playing live, for example, uh, you don't necessarily have to have the same amount of like physical movement, like you can dance, but that's not really like required in order to play a good mm -hmm. live set, I guess. Um, 
But I think it's interesting that with being an instrumentalist, your movement is really important, especially with the drums, I think. Mm, it, it is important. And, and, you know, that's why I suppose a lot of musicians do do, do other things to keep that body supple. Um, and, you know, whether it's a form of exercise or otherwise. But, uh, you know, the only thing I can really liken it to is martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is about using space, even sign language to to an extent, you know, how you negotiate space and distance and things like that. And, you know, accenting space and uh, probing at space and moving air and things, you know, is is what we do as, as musicians. So, yeah, it, it, it is interesting. But as I say, I think that, you know, as time goes on, you're, you're constantly listening to the body um, and, and how you negotiate your instruments. I know that previously you've talked about how physically and technically demanding it is to play the snare drum, which I think is your favorite instrument. Mm-hmm. So maybe just for people who are listening who are not familiar, can you describe the snare drum and what it what it's like to play that instrument. Yeah, I mean, the snare drum is something that we probably experience almost every single day of our lives as part of the drum kit or drum set. So we're, we're kind of very aware of, of the snare drum. I mean, if, if you imagine a, a drum kit without a snare, it would be a very different specimen. <laughs> um, but the snare drum on its own is something that we don't often experience and it's a surprising little instrument so basically the surface can be quite small you know maybe 14 inches or less than that sometimes and uh, and we have the snares underneath the the snare head so they come against the snare head and then the head that we strike is called the batter head and uh, and then there's a little snare lever at the side that puts the snares on or off so it's quite a versatile instrument um, normally played with snare drum sticks um, but you can also use mallets or bare hands and and super balls on it you know all sorts of things um, brushes of course but um, it, Technically, there are different styles of playing. So you can have the Swiss style or the American style, Irish style, Scots style, all sorts of different styles. And um, and there's an awful lot of manipulation with the hand and the stick uh, that happens, whether it's through your wrist work, your, your finger work, um, through, uh, you know, your whole arm, whatever it is, are different types of strokes, even although the ABCs are very small. Um, but then musically trying to get that rhythmic melody across is interesting because to look at it, to look at a snare drummer, it's normally pretty angular. The stick goes up and it goes down um, very basically. But the music, you know, has a line, that legato smooth line. And and uh, and it's really trying to emphasize that from what you're seeing, which is angular. And when you see something that's angular, you think of rhythm first and foremost, but actually there's so much more. There is a melody going on there. And it's trying to get that across really that I find fascinating. Um, and every snare drum is different. It, it's, it's like people, you know, really completely different. So yes, I think the snare is, is an instrument that you could specialize in for the rest of your days and and still be peeling it like an onion. And so, I don't actually know, but it seems to me that playing the snare drum is maybe like you play it a bit faster than you would maybe another percussion instrument. Um, 
Well, not really, actually. <laughs> well, but it's interesting because, you know, obviously when you play a closed role or a buzz role, mm. you know, the sticks are bouncing many times. And I think there was a little, um, uh, a, a kind of little test done whether Michael Flatley from uh, Riverdance... Lord of the Dance. Lord of the Dance, yeah. Of the dance, yeah. <laughs> uh, whether his feet were faster than a snare drummer's right. hands, you know, and I can't remember who won, actually. But, you know, yes, the hands can go and the fingers can go at a tremendous rate, but likewise, if you watch a tabla, an Indian tabla player, mm. and the speed of their hands is unbelievable, you know. So there are other instruments whereby you can play at a, a terrific rate. Um, but when the snares are on, you'll get that buzz anyway that mm. gives you the illusion that things are really right. kind of speeding up, you know, more than they are. But you, you can use some of the techniques on snare drum onto other instruments and it'll sound quite different. But it's an instrument that you absolutely know if someone can play it or not. You know, um, mm. it's a bit like a violin or, or a wind instrument where, you know, there's a point where you know that that player can play that instrument. Mm. And it's exactly the same with the snare drum. So if you play the snare drum not that well, it will sound not that well. Right. But with a lot of percussion, you can be fairly mediocre, but it sounds actually all right. You know what I mean? But not with the snare. Going back to the way that you listen to music or hear music. Um, if we tried, could everybody feel or listen to music in the same way that you do? And maybe what, what benefits would you say there are to kind of experiencing music in, in that way? Well, I think, first of all, there is a big difference between hearing and listening. You know, hearing is a, is a medical situation. So we've all got our, our hearing spectrums and so on. So and that's something that you can't control. That, that's just how it is for you or me or, or whoever it may be. Listening, however, is something that we can all do, no matter what your hearing level. And, and I think that I wouldn't say that um, there's a system or a method or anything like that, but there has to be patience. That's the first thing. And it's also, also distinguishing, you know, whether you're uh, listening to a live performance or situation um, or a recorded one, because that's two completely different situations. And as I say, I very rarely listen to music through a mechanism um, such as a laptop or mm -hmm. whatever, because you're not getting that gut feeling through, through the whole body, but definitely I find that being the participator of sound, that's that's where I get my emotional sort of input, really, um, physically, mentally, and everything else. And it's why I'm so keen for people to to play an instrument, to be involved in sound in some kind of way, so that they can open up their own bodies to resonance. Um, but we can be exposed to, to that. You've previously said that when you ask other musicians to listen, that they have to really focus and kind of concentrate and get rid of distractions. So do you think it's hard for people generally to kind of shut everything else out and, and listen actively? Yes. Yes, in a word, yes, it is. It's it's a concentration, you know. I mean, and when you take that word listen, it can also mean enlist and it can mean silence, you know, if you mix the letters up. Well, that's all about engagement, really. Concentration, focus, that's what listening is. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there's no shortcuts to it. You know, it is what it is, and you either decide to engage with that or or not. We talked earlier a bit about how we're kind of living in this fast-paced world. Do you think that that has made people impatient when it comes to listening? I think it's definitely um, changed our relationship with uh, with our environment, with sound, with our appreciation, and with our patience with one another as well. I, I think that has um, definitely changed. And yes, there's just an awful lot more ways of engaging our our attention, I suppose. It's a shame if you're sitting at a table and everybody is looking at their phones. The food tastes different. You know, it really does. You know, it's like putting wine in a plastic cup. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's a different kind of sensation. And so, yes, I think that our um, our involvement, our, the depth of our involvement is, is, has become a little more shallow. What advice would you give to someone hoping to listen more deeply or more actively or kind of experience music more physically, maybe? Yeah, I, I would say um, perhaps not necessarily to, to only focus on the musical side, but to think, well, what's my sound environment at home? You know, literally, what's the sound environment in the kitchen, in, in the bathroom, in the lounge, in the dining room, in the lobby, in the whatever it might be, you know, what is the sound environment? So are there any sounds there that you simply do not need? You know, so are there too many televisions in the house? Um, are there too many computers in the house? Um, are there just things that are making sounds that absolutely are simply not needed? Get rid, you know, a bit like a spring clean and a sound spring clean. Um, but, but also think about you know, your day and what's your sound environment for a day? You know, how many high sounds or cosmetically enhanced sounds are you feeding into your system? You know, how much do you listen by using your, your ear pieces, your earphones, you know? Could you just take them away a little bit? And and really think, what what's my frequency diet here? How, how, how much low sounds am I feeding myself with? Mid sounds, high sounds and so on. And uh, because our youngsters are getting a lot more mid and high frequencies and there's a far greater hearing loss in young people than ever before. And it's not just because of that, it's because of the amount of sound. So it's not even the volume of it, it's the amount of sound. And that's really what I'd ask people to think about is what is quite literally their sound diet. So we think about what we might eat, you know, we're not gonna have a whole packet of chocolate biscuits in the morning at lunchtime and at night, you know, we're just not going to do that for most of us. And, um, or we're not going to have three McDonald's a day. Um, but yet we might spend a massive part of our day with, with earpieces, listening to stuff. But, well, what is it doing to us, you know? So what else is that taking away? Um, or what is it adding to our day? And, you know, about two years ago, I happened to be artist in residence at King's Cross. And there at King, King's Cross Station, there's a, this big bird cage, you know, it's kind of a feature of the this, this station, just outside the station. And, uh, and we had a piece of music called uh, Echoes from the Bird Cage, because when you put a snare drum just right in the middle of the bird cage and you strike that drum, just bang, once, it resonates from off the buildings around King's Cross. And I took a snare drum down and I did exactly this and just asked people who were walking, you know, past, I said, oh, can you come into the birdcage and just 
listen to this and we chose one chap who had his earphones on and going back you know and and so we asked him to take off his earphones which he did and so we struck the drum and immediately his head went up like this and he said whoa that was unexpected kind of thing I had no idea and he said my god you know I walk through this area every single day to and from work I had no idea that this was almost like a resonator. Whatever that's going to do for him, I've got no idea. But the, the fact is, is that he looked up and had n no idea that this kind of sound existed in the area that he knew so well. And because our heads are all down at stuff at the moment, it's down in our phones, down in our computers, it's down, 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 and it's kind of raising ourselves up and that's what you do as a musician is that you're extracting sound from an object you know but that Im imagination and curiosity has to come from within us we then extract it from the the object and then get that out you know we can't get that out whilst we're looking down here you know we've really got to give get up and give it to people give that sound so is there such a thing as passive listening for you personally um i know you talked a bit about this before but people like to have you know background music while they're mm. doing their work or whatever else it might be um so i'm wondering if that's something that you do as well but i i guess probably no, not no. i don't know not not at all it's if i think the 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 sound for me that's really important is is peacefulness it's just an environment of peacefulness and that's the case at home you know so there's there's nothing there that is intrusive in in any kind of way um orally and and that's that's how i like it to be mm. yeah I want to talk a bit about the way that you listen to music, this kind of active uh, feeling of sound. I know that you discovered this method when you were younger, when you were at school, and your music teacher would play notes and you could feel them in different parts of your body. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell me a bit more about that process? Well, basically, it was my percussion teacher, and he tuned two timpani to different pitches, and I had my hands on the wall of the, the, the room. And so... I discovered that, you know, as the pitches were changing, you could feel those in different parts of your hand. And that was quite a revelation, really, for me. And uh, and it just opened up the fact that, well, actually, our bodies are like a resonating chamber, um, just like a, a marimba resonator or something. And, uh, and so it meant that you were paying attention to the beginning, the middle, and the end of the sound, um, and not just the beginning, not just the strike. And so to do that, you have to pay attention. So um, that's why music can't be passive for, right. for me. So that was, a, that was a start. How did you then learn to manipulate that process for other types of listening, like watching a film, for example, or uh, attending a concert? Yeah, I think that when I'm... In those sort of situations, you're actually using all of your senses much, much more. When I'm dealing with my own instruments, it's sort of listening to the mechanics of the body and to the sound and, and the feeling of that. But when you're going to a live concert or watching a film or going to the cinema or whatever, that you're, you're, there isn't that responsibility to give something. Um, so you're not in a position where you have to be analysing everything. Um, so you can take it or leave it, take what you want, leave what, you know, it's it's a different kind of thing altogether. The senses are definitely all involved when, when I'm attending other things. And so how has it been for you growing with this method of listening? Like, has it changed 
over the years? Uh, has it stayed the same? Well, I, I don't see it as a method. Um, I see it as something that just happens, you know. Um, sometimes if you're really tired or if you're feeling a bit down in the dumps, listening's really hard. And listening, it takes a lot of energy anyway. And it can be extremely tiring. And that's why the environment I have at home is really essential. Those precious moments, really, to, I suppose, recharge. And I think that's quite important to say because we're all engaged with so much at the moment. And I suppose, if anything, you know, I'm finding that I'm stripping things away, stripping things and, and trying to simplify things and focus on things. Um, and And that really... I suppose has affected a lot of the decisions I've made in in my career as well. You know, where it got to the point where, a bit like the the percussion instruments and wanting everything on stage. Mm. Where also with work, you were saying yes to everything, mm. and and to then suddenly discovering that well, hold on a second, do we need all of these instruments on stage? Do we need to say yes to all of this work? You know, we can actually begin to to strip things down a little bit so that you've got room to to grow room to, to rest. And, and we need rest for the senses too. How is it for you to hear a completely new instrument? Uh, I read in an interview of yours that you're kind of constantly coming across new instruments and that that really helps develop your listening skills. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think that it's important to always um, discover new things, new sounds, new ways of playing something uh, using different you know, body muscles, hand muscles, whatever it may be, whatever the instrument requires. And um, so that you're always out of your comfort zone. Um, and, you know, whether that's through a, a type of music that you're playing or an instrument that you haven't come across before, I think that's really important. Otherwise, it, there, there can be a tendency where you you feel, well, I know what I'm doing there, I know what that's about, and, and well, actually, that's a kind of danger sort of landscape to be in. Um, so, so yes, I, I find that it's just like opening up a box and thinking, OK, how am I going to negotiate this? And obviously you attack that or approach it by, well, I suppose from the percussionist's perspective, from the musician's perspective and from the sound creator's perspective. So, and there's no rules. Um, and, and I very much enjoy that, you know, mm. um, even if it's, you know, playing something in totally unauthentic way or, or whatever it may be, hey-ho, that's, that's that. <laughs> so what was the last new instrument that you discovered? Oh, heavens. Um, I would probably say the bones, you know, the Irish bones. No, maybe. I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, they're just two little shaped like, um, two little sticks that you kind of clack clatter okay, with, right. with your hand. Yeah. They're often used in Irish music or Celtic music. Mm. Um, I suppose that was something um, that was really different to what I'd played before. Um, but yeah, a lot of the hand percussion is always a kind of new experience. Um, learning to play um, an instrument called a halo, which is very much like a hung, um, was something that I hadn't done before. Again, that was, you just needed a little bit of time to work that one out. So you've also said that open-mindedness is a crucial element to the way that you listen to music. Um, why is that? And was it a learning process to be that open-minded? I think I've always been fairly open-minded, to be honest. I think that's just the way I am anyway about things and people and all sorts. And 
and uh, yeah, I, I can't really say I've had to consciously, you know, become open-minded or anything. I, I just um, I just like different things, new things, unexpected things. Um, I mean, I remember going to South Korea and seeing a traditional uh, Korean opera, I say with inverted commas, singer. And these people are huge stars out there. And the type of singing that they do is extraordinary, very, un very unlike our opera singers, our mm -hmm. Western opera singers. I say Western, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and at first I thought, my Lord, that is excruciating because it's a very gritty skirl almost, you know. But then the more I experienced this and the more that the, the our wonderful Korean hosts were were explaining you know the 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 techniques and so on you know, the more you began to know you, you know and appreciate and think my god you know and okay i walked away still not saying well i'm going to to you know go to go to a whole concert of that <laughs> yeah. or something but the appreciation was there mm -hmm. and the respect was there and and how dedicated and the training that they have to do just as our opera singers have to do and and it's it's amazing, really, and um, so it wasn't a case of you know shutting the oh I don't like that, which is very easy for us to do. Mm. And you can look at a piece of music and think oh I really don't like that, and then you just that's the label you put on yourself and the rela relationship you have with the piece, and that's a real shame. You have to keep an open door and give something a chance. Things need time. So I know that at one point you felt sort of limited by the use of drumsticks. So you started experimenting with different body parts and your head and your jewelry. Can you talk a bit about the ways that you were experimenting? I don't know, really. I think that um, I just like to experiment. Um, I think that's just a, a natural um, evolution, a natural thing that happens when you're a, a creative person or in a kind of creative business because you're you see things you come across things you meet people it could be something that someone has said that just seems so irrelevant at the time that actually just sticks with you or, or you just have a moment to think about it and think, hmm, that's interesting um, you know, that's what I find fascinating. I mean, and certainly when I was talking to the comedian and musician Bill Bailey recently, um, you know, he was saying, basically, he's someone who observes. He observes the spoken word. He observes the sound of an ambulance siren, you know, and, and how he can then make that into a joke, something for people to laugh to. So he can take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. And I find that really interesting, that in a way inspiration is all around us. And in my own case, I don't go out looking specifically for, for inspiration. It's just sort of there. And you can't be inspired all of the time. <laughs> you really can't. You know, you've really got to be miserable sometimes and feel miserable. And, and that is part of, of the journey. I think that it's, it's just nice to be able or to feel as though you've got the potential to to have that curiosity feel and 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 then do something not quite knowing where it's going to take you what kind of experimenting 
do you hope to do in the future? Or what are you curious about that you would like to try? I think that I'm just curious about collaborating with different kinds of artists. I really am. There are lots of things I'd, I'd like to do. I mean, I'd love to have a James Bond theme that is entirely percussive, <laughs> you know, for example. Um, <laughs> But I'd love to have a double concerto with Eminem and myself mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. I think it's it's all possible to think of, of those things nowadays. You know, I really do. And, and I think that technology has allowed us to, you, you know, think outside of the box, to think that, well, hold on a second, it might well be possible to collaborate with that person. Um, and I think also what I've discovered is that musicians, no matter what their musical background, come to a crossroads and usually several crossroads during their journey. And they're all seeking something else, something else that helps them just sort of be uncomfortable and, and think outside of the box and, and think, oh, you know what? Well, what if? What if we try this and that? And I think that's a really healthy point actually you know when you can delve into different things that is always where you're literally starting from scratch and step one as it were it's it's that's fine that's a good place to be Mm. and what about the listening experience what kind of changes do you hope to see well i think it's more uh, uh, an aware, I suppose it's a bit like the climate change situation you know where bit by bit we're all doing as best as we can, you know, under the reasonable circumstances that we can. And um, so just as we divide our rubbish or we, we, um, you know, perhaps use a different mode of transport or we get out and walk instead of, you know, taking the car or whatever it is, just little things make a big difference. And I think that's basically, um, when I talk about listening, it's little things that you can think about. You know, I'm not demanding, I'm not, telling people, um, I'm just simply asking for people to be aware for their general well-being, to think about their listening environment. So thinking about, you know, what their listening environment is when they when they go to work and is that affecting their productivity? What's their listening environment in their home? Is that affecting communication or patience? What about your senses? Are they being given a rest and and what are you feeding yourself um, by by listening and and the kind of um, environment that you're in? It, it's just little questions like that that people can go away and think about and um, and and just see if there's any awareness there and things that they can just gradually change that do make a difference. And that's that's kind of it. And so, do you feel like you're seeing a shift? in general of like better listening or deeper listening? I think the word listening is being used a lot more. Mm -hmm. I really do. And I think that when we see in the news, you know, articles about, well, I'm not being listened to or, you know, no one's listening to me or, oh, it makes such a difference that that I feel I'm being listened to. And and that kind of can, it's, it's amazing how much that, that kind of, topic is is being talked about and that's really great and understanding the difference between hearing and listening Um, and and that ultimately it takes one person and another person in order for somebody to to feel as though listening means something for them actually but we've got to listen to ourselves before we can open up and listen to someone else listening to yourself is really important